Hi, this is your CyberPath. This is the podcast that helps you get your dream cybersecurity job. I'm Kip Boyle, and I'm an experienced hiring manager of cybersecurity professionals. In today's episode, I want to answer a common question that I get. Here's the question. Why do all the cybersecurity job postings ask for five years of experience, but they're labeled as entry-level positions? Well, there's really two common reasons for what's going on there. The first thing you need to understand is that an employer's job description is really a wish list. They they don't expect to find someone who hits on 100% of the requirements. They they would be glad if, if that happened, but it doesn't always happen. And so typically they need to make some compromises. And no, they don't say any of this that I just shared with you openly, but as an experienced hiring manager, I can tell you that that's usually what's going on behind the scenes. So my advice to you is that if you, if you meet even 50% of the requirements in a job description that you see, make sure that you apply. Don't read the job description as if it's the requirements for a new video game that you want to play. And we all know how that goes. You know, you need a certain caliber of video card. You need so much RAM. And if you don't have it, then you know the, the gameplay is not going to be very good. You may not even be able to load the game. And so you don't buy the game or, you know, you go off and you, you upgrade your system and then you go and you get the game. Well, job descriptions are not video game requirements. Like they're not meant to be taken that literally. So, um, so if that's the way you're thinking about it, please get into a different headspace because um, you're, you're, you're unintentionally blocking yourself from really great opportunities. So that's the first reason. Now, the second reason why they ask for five years of experience is... Uh, is a little tougher for people to hear. I know they call it an entry-level job and it is entry-level for cybersecurity, but it's not entry-level in the traditional way that we think of that term. It's a little, it's a little different. Cybersecurity entry-level jobs typically require a lot of knowledge and experience before you're actually qualified for one. Now, most people pick up that work experience uh, in a feeder job and they might spend two or three years working in that feeder job to get the necessary amount of experience. So what's a feeder job? Well, typically it's a systems administrator or a network administrator. Now, I wanna to try to explain this in a different way. I want to use a different example altogether. Let's, let's look at, look at the, uh, the, uh, the aviation industry, okay? So you might ask, what does it take to become an entry-level Boeing 787 pilot, right? Because let's face it, until you start flying a 787, uh, you know, that's entry level, isn't it? I mean, the, the, the first time that you get in behind the controls of a 787, that that's, that's the first time, right? So I think what you can see where I'm going here, right? But let me, let me walk you through it. So to begin the process of getting an entry-level 787 job, the first thing you need to do is accumulate 1,500 hours of total flight time. And why do you need to do that? Because that's what you need to, uh, to achieve in order to qualify to take an examination. Now, this exam is called an airline transport pilot exam. When you get that, you're then certified to fly scheduled uh you know, scheduled flights for uh, for a scheduled airline. And so in those 1500 hours of flight time, you need 500 hours of cross-country time, 100 hours of nighttime flying, 75 hours of instrument time, 
and you need 250 hours of time as what's called pilot in command. And, and there's some other requirements too, but clearly you need a lot of experience just to take this first examination. Now, once you're certified as an airline transport pilot, you're authorized to act, with, act as what's called pilot in command, again, on scheduled commercial flights. Okay, but, but all that does is actually get you to a, a stepping stone in the, uh, in the path to becoming a 787 pilot. So if you, if you get that certification, you, you don't go right to 787s, you go to a turbine powered uh, twin engine aircraft like the one that you see on the screen here, uh, where you're, you're carrying passengers. Now, it takes about two years of full-time work to accumulate those 1,500 hours of flight time. And you may do some or all of that work on your own. It depends on whether you get a, uh, get a job as, um, as, a, uh, as a pilot, maybe as an instructor pilot teaching other people who want to fly. Um, but a lot of this is going to come out of your own pocket, and it's going to be something that you're going to have to do on your own. Now, to become a 787 uh, pilot, you still need to accumulate more experience. You need about 5,000 total hours of piloting a multi-engine aircraft carrying passengers. And that's going to take another five or six years. And you might accumulate that experience flying, for example, a 737 like you, like you see here. Okay. So now you're um, maybe coming up on 10 years of flying. You've got 5,000 hours and, and you're still trying to get that 787 pilot job. Okay, once you're qualified, there's still actually a lot of competition to get that job. It, it's really, and it's really expensive to train a pilot. As you can probably imagine, 5,000 hours, every hour costs a lot of money. And so most for-profit companies are not going to train you from the very beginning, from the time that you don't know anything at all about how to, uh, how to fly or how weather works or how weather affects flying, most companies aren't going to do that. Now, there are some who will, right? The military, I started off as in flight school in the military. And so, you know, I've kind of had a, uh, uh, you know, a, a, an up close look at kind of how this whole, whole, whole process works, which is why I think it's, it's a good analogy for me to use to help you understand it. So um, the military, yeah, they'll qualify people, bring them in from zero hours and, and take them all, all the way up to fully qualified pilot. But if you're flying, if you want to fly 787, you know, that's not the case. Now there's some parallels here with cybersecurity. Turns out the military will take you from zero as long as you've got the right aptitude and you meet other qualifications, but they'll take you from zero and they'll train you to become a cybersecurity expert in you know, different types of uh, fields of expertise. Now, not everybody can join the military. I get that. But, it, but that's one of the few organizations that I know of where they really are offering entry-level cybersecurity jobs in the way that that term implies, right? Uh, by the way, I thought you'd find this to be a really interesting fact. So the, the F-22, which is a, a program that I worked on when I was in the military, it costs the Air Force about $11 million to fully train each F-22 pilot. So just to give you a benchmark, right? Um, now, again, it, it's, it's nowhere near that expensive to train cybersecurity people, but, but we're talking about a completely different organization, right? One that's not, not uh, required to turn a profit. So, uh, so even though it's not that expensive, it still does cost quite a bit to train people. The military can retain the people that they've trained, right? There's service obligations. And so, you know, they can kind of 
you know, get a return on the investment for training you. In the private industry, it's not nearly as straightforward as that. But the good news is, is there's a lot of things you can do to gain expertise without breaking your bank account. All right. So let's let's take a look at a couple of, of ideas that I have for you. So the first thing that I want you to think about is, is that you need hands-on experience solving real world problems. And so you, you need to get skills. Where are you going to get these skills? Well, this is a $600 million professional grade data center. And what you need to do, because you don't have access to one of these right now, but you'd like to have access, but you need to find a way to approximate, right? Uh, as close as you can come to this uh, type of a setup in your own home. And then once you do that, you're going to conduct experiments in this home lab that you're going to build. Now, not only can you build a home lab, but you can actually take your very modest home network, right? You've got an internet router, you've got a wireless system, and then you've got maybe, I don't know, a handful of devices. Now you can actually build up your home network to make it more like a production network. And you can uh, add all kinds of different things like maybe a media streaming server where you can uh, have your movies and, uh, and provide that as a service to your family, to your roommates, to yourself. And by doing that, it's going to give you the experience of what it must be like in a paid position where there are computer services that need to be up and running at all times. You could also volunteer. There's probably in your area, wherever you live, I don't know, but there's probably charities or nonprofit organizations, could be a school that would love to have a volunteer who's very interested in learning systems administration, network administration, and pitching in and helping. So a volunteer role will also go a long way to help you. Now, another strategy for using your home lab is to study for a certification. So if you don't know, if you're starting from zero, you probably need to think about getting a CompTIA A plus certification, a Network Plus certification, and a Security Plus certification. And you can self-study or you can get into study groups. You can buy study packages. There's all kinds of ways you can do it. Um, some of those ways cost no money at all. Some of those ways, you know, cost a little bit of money. But the thing about it is, is that when you study for these examinations, you don't want to study just so that you can pass the test. That's not what I'm talking about. You really need to learn what the certification is teaching you. And that means that you need to have your, your home lab, your test lab, in order to be able to try stuff out in a safe environment where if you mess it up, okay, you know, you, you lost some time, but more importantly, you learn something. It's failure that's going to teach you the most about how this all works and is gonna give you the experience that you need. The bottom line is skills matter the most. Now, these are the basic traditionals of a, of a uh, sorry, these are the basic components of a traditional home computer lab. And you can start very small and then you can grow your home lab over time by adding different components. Like you might not have an uninterruptible power supply in the beginning, but you can add one of those later and you can add one that has a programmatic interface so that you can actually have your computer talk to it or more importantly, have the UPS tell your computer, hey, the electricity's out. It's time for you to do an orderly shutdown. Um, and then you can do more, more complicated networking things as you, you gain in your skills. Now, in the past, people would build a home lab out of actual hardware, and they might store that hardware in a garage or in a closet or in a spare room or an attic or something like that, because this stuff's noisy, generates a lot of heat, not very fun to share your living space 
with a lot of this gear. But today you can use virtualization and you can put a lot of computers together, a lot of uh, network devices together in a, uh, in a closed, isolated TCP IP network in your home and typically on a single computer if it's got enough RAM and storage and processors uh, capabilities, then, then you can actually go get virtualization software and you can, you can build a very big network on, uh, you know, in, in, the, in the memory of, of, of just a single computer. Now, this approach is cheaper, it's faster, it's quieter than having dedicated hardware. So this is, a, this is actually, a, uh, I would say, a better place to start. If you want the very best place to start, the one that's really gonna uh, set, you, uh, set you up for success for the future is building a home lab in the cloud. So AWS, for example, has a free tier where you can get in there and sign up and they'll give you a huge basket of hours where you can build whatever you like in, in the cloud. And what's great about that is you're gonna be able to learn about uh, new concepts uh, that are gonna be directly, you know, it's gonna directly translate into, the, into a job that's gonna be available for you to get. You'll be able to say, that yes, I know how to administer systems and networks, and yes, I know how to do that in the cloud, which is super, super important. This is the trend. We're going away from servers that are, that are installed in a physical building that you work in, and everybody's going towards virtual servers. Not, not everybody's there yet, especially companies and organizations that have been around a long time. They're still going to have a lot of gear, and so you, you might still see that. But a lot of our customers who are smaller, who are newer, this is how they are doing their computing. They're doing what's called cloud first. And their offices, even if they're even, you know, if they even have an office, it's nothing more than a private Starbucks where you they have a, a wireless um, uh, access point, maybe, maybe a few, maybe, maybe a whole fleet of them. But really, at the end of the day, it's just a place for people to gather with their laptop computers. There's no servers. There might be a way to do some, some printing, some local printing. They might have a print server, but everything else is going to be in the cloud. So think about cloud. That's where you really need to start. Now, another thing you can do to get experience, to prepare yourself, is go out to the Center for Internet Security because they have uh, benchmarks. Now, benchmarks are a collection of security settings for a given operating system or a piece of hardware, a router, a switch, um, so forth, a wireless access point. Now, these benchmarks are freely available to you. You can get them, you can study them, you can learn what's in them. There's more than 100 configuration guides, and, uh, and they're dealing with over 25 vendor product families. So there's a lot there. And the goal of these benchmarks is to safeguard systems against threats. So if you, if you get your hands on them and you study them, especially for popular products like Windows Server and Windows Desktop and uh, things like that, then that's gonna give you a leg up. Get in there, crack these things open, understand what's in them. Now, you can learn even more by actually implementing these settings in the actual uh, computers that they're intended for. So once again, I recommend you go into the cloud, you spin up a cloud server in the free tier of AWS, maybe Azure, whatever cloud provider that you like to work with, and go ahead and enter these settings. Now you can get pre-built virtual machines that have all these settings enabled, but I don't think that's, that's going to uh, help you understand as, as much as putting in the settings yourself. Time-consuming, absolutely. That's why people do pre 
built virtual machines so that they don't have to hand enter. But to do that once or maybe twice is going to really put that information into your brain. It's going to really help you understand uh, what's, you know, what's going on at the, at the lower levels here. So another thing you can do is think about joining an organization that invests in building a cybersecurity talent pipeline. If you ever hear about an organization having a talent pipeline, that usually means that they are identifying people who may not have all the right skills yet, but have the right attitude, the right aptitude, and that organization is willing to invest in training people to learn how to do cybersecurity the way that company likes to do it. So the military, as, you, as I said before, and as you probably know, they already have their own in-house talent pipeline. And what's great about that is you can work full-time and get paid while you learn what you need to know. Now, I know not everybody can join the military for various reasons. There are other organizations that probably have a talent pipeline. Here in the Seattle area, we have the headquarters of T-Mobile, and I know that they've got a talent pipeline. They have an arrangement with the University of Washington. And so that's one of the ways that they are dealing with the, the problem they have, which is identifying people who have, uh, you know, who can, who can fill all the empty seats that, that they've got. So you might want to think about that, looking for a company that has a talent pipeline. There, there's not that many of them. You're going to have to constantly search for those positions. You need to be talking to people that you know to find out which organizations might have that available to you. Okay, so I hope that helps you understand um, what's going on when you, you, you see entry-level job in a job description, but the requirements are much higher than somebody coming at it who wants to learn, who's hungry to learn, really motivated, but doesn't have the skills yet. So, you know, why is that gap there? I hope you understand why entry-level job has a different meaning in cybersecurity than it, than it does in other, uh, other professions. I, um, you may need to train yourself in order to, to cross this gap, this gap between where you are now and where you want to be. Or if you can, you might want to join an organization that will train you how to become a cybersecurity expert while you are actually working and, uh, and earning an income. So, so there you go. That's what I wanted to share with you today, this whole thing about entry-level jobs. I hope that makes a lot of sense. Now, I'm not saying that this is the right way for organizations to do things or that this is the desired way. I'm just helping you understand why most organizations seem to come at this issue of entry-level jobs the way that they do. There's, there's probably organizations out there that are way more generous in terms of training people and identifying people early on. But I would say at this point, in my observation, they are the exception and not the rule. Okay. Hey, if you like our podcast, then we've made a free guide for you. And I hope you'll go ahead and, and grab a copy of it. It's called Play to Win, Getting Your Dream Cybersecurity Job. And if you've ever played Capture the Flag, as a, as a way of training yourself, right, to, to, to understand what cybersecurity is all about, attack and defense and so forth. If you've ever played Capture the Flag, then this guide is for you because it's gonna teach you how to take that approach of breaking into a, a computer to capture that digital flag and apply that to your job hunting. So it's a, it's a really helpful 20 page visual guide. I hope you go get it. On the screen, you can see pages six and seven. And uh, we talk about different blockers that you've got to get through in order to get the job that you really want. You know, the first blocker is you have to know the job that you want 
by the title of the job. You can't just have some vague idea that you want to get into security. You've really got to pick a job by title. Anyway, the guide talks all about that. I hope you go get it. If you do, here's the URL, yourcyberpath.com forward slash PDF. Here's the thing I want you to remember. More than anything else, you're just one path away from your dream cybersecurity job. Thanks a lot for being here. See you next time.